0: father greg boyle and greg boyle is a jesuit priest and he started a ministry he's the founder of homeboy ministries which was started in the 1980s and it is the largest gang intervention ministry in the world it's in los angeles um also on his list of credentials is that he's he was a chaplain at one point in folsom prison and so um I I, I think that that's a great video, and I like hearing from him. Um, He has a book that I think is called Heart Tattoos, or Tattoos on the Heart. Uh, Our scripture today is Psalm 133. We're going to read it together, but before we read the scripture together, let's stand and say the Shema together. Would you stand and recite the Shema with me? Let's recite it together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our scripture passage is a a whole psalm, but it's Psalm 133, and it's just three verses. So let's recite it together. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down, on the beard on the beard of Aaron Running down over the collars of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, how's your family? That's the question that the scripture wants me to ask you this morning. How's your family? I have friends from high school and college that I don't get to see very often, but when I do see them, the conversation inevitably rests on that question, how's your family? One of those friends is a son of a pastor. I can remember going to his home and, and seeing the pictures of his family on the mantle in his home when I was in high school of his sister and his parents. And they looked just like models. And they acted just like models. They were perfect. When I see him, I certainly tell him that everyone in my family is fine. Thank you for asking. And tell your family I said hello as well. But I have another friend. Another friend that had a rough go of it during our high school years. And everybody in town knew it. My parents didn't let me go over to her house very often, but when I got over there, I got over there enough to know that one of her parents drank too much, and the other one had an affair, and the kids were pretty much in charge of what happened in the home. When that friend asks me, how's my family, my response to her is, pull up a chair. How much time do you have? The Bible wants to know, how's your family? How do you answer that question? The truth of the matter is that I've lived long enough to know that things weren't then and aren't now so perfect for that son of a pastor. And I've read enough of the Bible to know that things couldn't have been so perfect in the family of the psalmist either. This psalm that we read this morning is a psalm of ascent, and so it's short, it's three verses, it was probably recited by pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem for a celebration, for a festival, maybe even Sukkot. Ever been on a family road trip? All packed into one car together for the long ride? Before the invention of the personal screen, I can remember plenty of squabbling and and drawing imaginary boundaries. You stay on your side of the line in the back seat. and, And then there were demands for pit stops or no stops. You know, we can make it. And arguments over where to eat and the route, the right route to take. Put your family road trip on that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it's not so hard to imagine the elder and the family crying out, Have mercy on me! How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Have mercy! Then there are the family stories of the psalmist. Do the genealogy on this family, and it's not too shiny. The bad news, the good news, is that the psalmist, family stories are our family stories, too. We have this great, great, many, many greats grandfather whose brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. And we have another forefather who tricked his brother out of his birthright, stole everything from him. Yet another forefather whose father almost killed him. And this wasn't This wasn't a crime of passion. That'd be too comfortable. This was a calculated, creepy, God-told-me-to-do-it story. But maybe the most unsettling, the most blatant disregard for unity story is the very first story of brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain who, in a fit of rage and jealousy, kills his brother. We have this history This family story of disunity, of contention and hostility, it comes way too easily for us. And while I'm slow to say what God intends, because as Father Greg Boyle said, when I say what God wants, I'm usually saying what I want, what's more comfortable for me, I am willing to stake a claim on God's intention for kinship on God's intention for relationship and connection and unity. First of all, it's difficult for me. It doesn't come easily to me. It means work and self-limitation. And second of all, I'll remind you of the creation story that we considered this summer. The creator in the first creation story is continually blessing creation as it unfolds. So light is good, and land is good, the plants are good, the sun and the moon are good, the sea creatures and the land animals are good, humankind is good, the whole of creation is good, but then there's one thing that is not good, that is not tove, and that is for humankind to be alone. The wisdom writer in Ecclesiastes says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. It was a man alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to all their toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I working? For whom am I toiling? He said, this is meaningless. The Bible says in the beginning and reiterates throughout that it's not good for us to be alone. Psalm 133 says that it's good when we live together in unity, and that it's more than just pleasant. It's like two different surprises of goodness. There are two different metaphors in Psalm 133. Two different rare surprises of goodness. Oil that welcomes and anoints, and is abundantly rich and messy, and then dew that is so plentiful that it spills from a distant northern location to the center of the southern kingdom. So let me rephrase that for you. Unity is like two different rare surprises of goodness. It's like the scent of your favorite dessert when you walk into a friend's home that's prepared just for you, And in a summer of drought, it's 17 inches of rain (laughs) without the mosquitoes. Two different surprises of goodness. In other words, unity is really, really good. So good that it attracts God's blessing. God's blessing resides right there in connection. God's blessing resides right there in unity. The psalmist is celebrating an experience Among family, maybe immediate family, probably extended family, could even be anyone, any child of God, this experience of unity. And it's in that experience of unity, that experience of connection, where the psalmist finds God's blessing. When I need a definition for a theological term, I often go to Dallas Willard's work, And here is how Willard defines blessing. He said that blessing is the projection of good onto the life of another. So that when we bless one another, we are projecting good onto their very lives. We are willing another person's good under the invocation of God. John Ortberg writes about how when his daughter Laura was a child in her crib, But in the middle of the night, she would cry, and he would come into her room, and as he came into her room, he would say to her, I will stroke your little head. Don't cry. I will stroke your little head. And then he would bend over the crib, and he said until his back ached, and he would pat her soft hair, and then he'd tiptoe away. That's what you do, right? Hoping that the child doesn't wake up again. Those words, I'll stroke your little head, or I'll pat your back, Those words are a blessing. That's one of the ways that we bless one another. It's when we align our will, our mind, our body for the good of another. It can't be rushed, and it is a sacrifice or a self-limitation of sorts. It's sitting with someone and hearing them out and hoping for the best for them and speaking words of encouragement to them. We all do it. We all find times where we bless one another and we have been blessed by one another. And the thing of it is, when we do it, when we bless another person, it ushers in unity, it ushers in connection, and that is the very place where God's blessing resides. As Father Greg Boyle said, God would say, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about kinship. And that kinship is the kingdom of God. I've said this before. Hashtag blessed is not a material possession. Hashtag blessed is not a personal achievement. So don't post it. I don't want to see it. I'm not going to like it. But hashtag blessed always involves another person. If you're going to hashtag blessed some photo, some picture, it better have another person in there. Barbara Brown Taylor says that she hopes that churches are still good for bringing people together who ordinarily wouldn't choose to be together. She says we need it. We need that safe place of I can say anything to you, but beyond that, we need this larger space that she calls, hello, Christian brother and sister, who the heck let you in here? And no, I don't want to hold your snake. When we're in that place, When we're in that larger place, and we find something that we disagree upon, when that thing that we disagree upon comes to light, we put it in parentheses, and we change the subject, and then we find the very thing that we can meet on, the thing that brings us both to tears. Churches should still be good for that. Churches are good for that, for finding that unity, for finding the connection, for finding the common ground, the things that bring us to tears. In her research, Brene Brown found that men and women who have the strongest sense of belonging Participate in what she calls experiences of collective joy or collective pain with strangers. In 1912, sociologist Emil Durkheim called this collective effervescence, and more recently, it's been called collective assembly by sociologists, but I would just call it worship. Sociologists say more often than not, in collective assembly, music draws us together. Music brings us together in joy or in sorrow. And then in those moments, we do connect with one another. We do hold hands with strangers. We show up for one another, and we do this. We do this in funerals. We show up for one another in worship. We show up for one another at Sukkot. We do it as faithful people of God because it is creative work. It's the creative work of unity. We'll call it... The creative work of the eighth day of creation. It is the work that we are called to do. It is the work that we are designed to do. And so then worship just trains us to connect with one another. It trains us to show up for strangers and to bless one another so that we can then take our understanding of showing up for one another out into real life. There's absolutely nothing wrong with family values. But I believe that it matters. It matters very much what your family values. And our family values unity. We value connection. How very good it is when we live together. For that is the place of God's blessing. That is the very gift of life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are King of the universe. And we thank you for bringing us to this time, to this season, the season of Sukkot, the season of your provision, a time of rest and hospitality, of connection and celebration. And so we place our lives before you and we welcome the experience of unity. In every family that we find ourselves part of, Lord, where there is discord, would you bring compassion? Where there is restraint and distance, would you bring affection? Because we all seek to do your creative work. We seek to welcome others. Would you teach us and use us and bless us? Amen.